The ship that is our identity never floats on the same water twice. But if you could upgrade yours with a compass telling you exactly how to navigate life's rough emotional waters, would you be better off? And would this help you better understand who you are? Welcome to Season 1, Episode 6 of the Evolve Faster Podcast. I'm Scott Ely. Without a compass, all who sail the seas of identity are not lost. In less than 12 hours, Lisa's identity will be completely altered by a controversial drug nicknamed the Mule. Looking into the mirror, contemplating the rash decision she'd made, she attempted a laugh at the mess the tears left behind. The mascara lines running down her face looked like black, dried-up riverbeds you might see in a National Geographic special about the fate of the Amazon rainforest. She could hear the voiceover in her head as the footage rolled from above. Global warming has left behind this decimated riverbed. The wildlife is all gone. In her imagination, it was Morgan Freeman's voiceover, and it was his silhouette you could see in the foreground of the shot from the helicopter. But her sarcasm, usually her armor, couldn't save her anymore, and she burst into further tears. The chemical procedure starting the next morning was finally too impending to avoid. She put her hands on the sides of the sink and, for once, allowed the flood of tears to happen. Drops of the black riverbed cascaded into the porcelain sink below, creating another environmental catastrophe. She couldn't remember ever having cried so hard for so long. Her smartphone began to ring as the sobbing was finally subsiding. Glancing at it, she knew she had to answer or else risk a concerned drop-in that she did not want to deal with right now. The nearest bath towel took the brunt of the makeup mess as she quickly wiped it across her face. She averted her gaze from the mirror to avoid another breakdown and took a deep breath. The armor was rusty from all the tears, but hiding the pain was one of Lisa's well-mastered skills. Hi, sis, she answered with all the energy she could muster. I suppose this is your last-ditch attempt to try and change my mind about this again. But I already told you, I'm as stubborn as a mule about taking this mule. She knew her tone sounded fake, but she tried to laugh casually anyway. I really wish you wouldn't do this. God only knows what could happen. Lisa replied, Oh, come on, stop being so 20th century. Don't worry. I'll make sure to tell them my sister will be bored if my sense of humor changes and the sarcasm she loves so much disappears. Look, I'll be fine. After I complete the therapy, I'll arrange one for you. Then we can be happy together. Can you even imagine you being happier than you? Realizing there was no way to persuade her out of this, Lisa's sister sighed audibly on the phone. She knew Lisa's defenses all too well and what happened if you pushed too hard. Okay then, promise me you'll be careful. Don't be afraid to change your mind if you get there and aren't comfortable. With that, they finished their call, leaving Lisa alone with thoughts and recollections she didn't care to have. Before she lost both her job and her latest relationship, all within the same month, she might not have considered taking the drug either, but she was a different person now and hoped 
to be an even more different one in a month or two. She thought back through the recent string of events in her usually mediocre life. Events that now had her sailing off with a new ship via a chemical compass giving her navigational instructions. If she were forced to assess herself, and she was assuming she'd have to do exactly that the next day, Lisa would describe herself as the pure embodiment of averageness, except in one way. She had a nasty temper. It was out of her control, and according to Lisa, the main culprit for her bad life. If you viewed her life as a ship at sea, and you could look back at her lack of progress on a map, the only thing consistent about the navigation would be the constant near capsizing from storms of her temper. The sea floor was littered with parts of her ship, broken off each time she wasn't able to control her rage. Sunken relationships here, capsized career over there, and unhappy remnants floating all about. It seemed like a drunken sailor was at the helm, bouncing from port to port and from one near wreck site to the next without a plan or a reason. If there was a compass on her ship, or even a rudder, it had clearly been smashed in one of her fits of uncontrolled emotion. In the mule, she saw what she felt was her only chance to upgrade the compass and, hopefully, have it auto-navigate her to what was next. She'd tried everything else. Naturally, in the beginning, Lisa blamed everyone else for her troubles. But as she floated on without direction, with problems and issues breaking off parts of her ship, she slowly started to conclude that she was the problem. Lisa recalled many situations where either because of her temper, cynicism masked as sarcasm, stubbornness, or her seeming inability to find the right direction to take in life, she'd lost what she otherwise might have gained. And just as she thought it couldn't get any worse, it did. Lisa felt the balance of her boat tipping over to the negative side as worse and worse things started to happen over the last year. And the more bad things that happened, the more Lisa blamed herself. Desperate people have the tendency to overthink. So ironically, it was becoming abundantly clear that there was only one common denominator here. Her boat finally nearly capsized when she recently got invited to her boss's office. Lisa worked at a small software company. She'd been fired enough times to know in her gut what was coming. Her boss told her the overwhelming complaints from just about every team member about her attitude were the final straw. She was in a linchpin position as the product manager, and the communications breakdown of her in the middle was putting the project at risk. It was too small of a company to continue taking that risk. If this project sunk, the company could sink. She had to go. Lisa's temperament switched into burst mode. It had all the makings of the perfect storm for Lisa. She screamed, dropped F-bombs, and badmouthed every team member in her nasty, sarcastic way, a tone very familiar to her boss. The manager calmly replied that it wasn't easy to fire people, but she was making it clear at this moment why she wasn't a fit for this company. Lisa was out on the street without a job, a damaged ship without a navigation plan once again. When she got home, she let her body flop on the couch as a waterfall of desperate tears started running again. She wouldn't even let herself relive the breakup which had preceded this event just a couple weeks prior. 
That would just add fuel to the fire. No job, no relationship, no success, no life. And all because she was a loud, cocky person with a short fuse. Why can't I control my emotions? Why was I born like this? Lisa couldn't escape the feeling of guilt. If it made sense to apologize to herself, she would. But what was the use of that? She felt her identity was her own worst enemy, an enemy she couldn't defeat or change. A few depressing weeks passed after the embarrassment she made of herself in her boss's office. Then one day, as she was reading the news, she stumbled upon an article about some drug that supposedly could change one's identity. The pharmaceutical company in charge of creating this drug claimed it could change the world. If their test proved to be successful, the drug would help many people. The article went on to say the government was involved in backing the drug's research via some abnormally large grant. Lisa clicked the links and wasted no time checking to see if the trial was open for volunteers. In fact, the call for applicants was right on their homepage. She looked around, wondering if she might be dreaming. This seemed too good to be true, considering the way she felt about herself at the moment. And there she was, lost at sea, partially sinking ship, jobless, without a mate, crying every day, and most importantly, desperate enough to be a guinea pig. With the drug appearing just at the right time, Lisa wondered how life takes such mysterious turns, almost as if it were fiction. Inspired for the first time in as long as she could remember, Lisa applied for the testing. She was a good writer and painted precisely the picture of the perfect test subject that she expected they were looking for in her application. The truth, in this case, was really all she needed anyway. But a little embellishment never hurt. After spending the next month drowning her grief in wine and desperately checking her email and spam folder, the hopeful interview invitation finally arrived. If she qualified, treatment would begin immediately. She told only who she needed to tell for logistical reasons. In case something bad happened, at least someone in her family had to know what she'd done and who had done it to her. So she told her only sister. Family, at least, usually stuck around in your life, even when you were often an asshole to them as well. And now, tomorrow was finally the day. Lisa reminded herself again, in exactly 12 hours from now, she would have her identity changed forever. The thought made her stomach queasy, but also it gave her excited heart palpitations at the same time at the potential. She quickly exited the bathroom and made a mental note to steer clear of that mirror for at least the next 24 hours or so. Waking up the next morning, surrounded by tissues that had long since dried and a half-empty bottle of wine, Lisa quickly fixed her appearance, doing her best to avoid eye contact with herself. A bit of makeup, a neatly ironed dress, and a pair of simple but stylish shoes did the trick, and the effort kept her distracted. An hour later, Lisa was standing in front of a modern-looking building that, according to the address, was supposed to be the laboratory. It was 8.55 a.m., and she was scheduled to be there at 9. At least I was able to steer myself somewhere on time, Lisa thought as she read the sign. The Institute 
for genetic study and modifications. Looking at the building, Lisa felt as if she was going to a dentist and not a chemically induced genetic modification session that changed her identity forever. As she entered a vast, expensive looking hall, she noticed a sentence carved in substantial gold letters on the wall. Only a fool learns from his mistakes. The wise man learns from the mistakes of others. Otto von Bismarck. A bit pompous for a genetic lab, Lisa thought to herself. Nevertheless, while standing in the hall waiting, she started to recall how many times in her life she hadn't learned. She remembered the first failed relationship that ended because she was always fighting with her boyfriend back when she was 17. Then the second relationship came and went in the exact same way. A smirk appeared on Lisa's face. God damn you, Bismarck. Maybe it's not so pompous after all. Perhaps this is actually part of the application process. They're sitting there watching my face on camera as I read this quote to see if I realize how big of a fool I've been. After sitting a few more minutes, a guy in a lab coat invited her into another room. Lisa expected the room to be more like an operation hall with all kinds of medical equipment and an operation bed in the middle. The idea of changing her identity seemed so drastic to her that she assumed the procedure itself must be quite medieval. But to her surprise, she entered a casual yet well-decorated office with books and large windows. There were books on philosophy, psychology, neuroscience, and as she walked the shelves, Lisa even noticed Oscar Wilde's novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, carefully hidden among all the scientific books. Now, her feeling that she was visiting a dentist changed to the feeling of visiting a shrink. At the end of the office waiting for her was a middle-aged, well-dressed man. He invited Lisa to sit with him for a talk. He told her his name was Isaac Clark. And before letting Lisa introduce herself, he asked her if she knew the difference between an identity and a personality. Lisa just sat there, feeling precisely like Bismarck's fool, while giving a simple no for an answer. Isaac started explaining in a monotone yet warm voice. Imagine identity as your body and your personality as the clothes you choose to wear. In a similar fashion, as your body's health is under the influence of both external and internal causes, so is your identity. Rain catches you as you're walking home, and the next day, your body gets sick. You lose your job, and your identity gets sick with a feeling of grief. And although you overcome the sickness, the scars of the sickness stay, and usually, they help you create a stronger immune system. But with identity, it's a bit different in the sense that it doesn't function on autopilot. The scars can either help you create a stronger identity or simply make the wound deeper and uglier. Lisa tried to help herself, but the urge to answer sarcastically was much too strong. Whenever she was out of her comfort zone or trying to hide her pain, her sarcastic armor got in the way of real communications. Well, I did lose my job about a month ago, so thanks a lot for reminding me. But I don't understand, why are you telling me all this? Isaac went through some papers while answering. Our discussion here today is just laying out some groundwork for you to understand the potential of this identity modification for you and to make sure you're a fit. If you are, 
what we will do is create a drug according to the data we gather here, coupled with a few other tests. After that, it's nothing more than you taking a pill and maybe doing a little homework. It should simply tune up your identity by calibrating your emotions. But before we do that, I'm obliged to explain to you what shapes our identity without taking any artificially made supplements. Thus, I'm going to tell you about some famous theories on human identity. Think of it as a necessary foundation for the building of your new identity. First, we'll start with a philosopher named John Locke, who thought that our consciousness creates our identity. That will be followed by a basic introduction into neuroscience so that you get an idea of how our brain functions when faced with various emotions. Finally, I'll tell you about a psychologist named Eric Erickson and his theory of psychosocial development, which he believed every person goes through. If, after our talk, you still feel like taking the mule and we still think you qualify, we'll continue with the procedure. Does that make sense? Wait, it's actually called the mule, Lisa replied? I laughed when I read the initial email you sent, but I thought it was a typo. It's not very scientific, don't you think? Why didn't you call it Identity Crisis Eliminator or something like that? Oh, it's just the nickname we've given to the drug, Isaac answered with a smile. Look at it this way. It's easier to remember than some silly made-up corporate pharmaceutical name like Ambilify, isn't it? And mules are considered to be stubborn, same as our identities tend to be. Finally, we're stubborn like a mule at making this treatment become a full-blown reality. You have no idea how many people are against this drug. I can imagine, she replied. And the fact that that idiot of a governor is sponsoring it doesn't help, does it? Isaac sighed. Look, I don't back with the governor, or for that matter, a lot of what the rest of this government does. But I do truly believe this will help people. Let's not talk about that and instead start building your new foundation, shall we? I'll start with John Locke. John Locke was one of the most influential Enlightenment thinkers and one of the leading philosophers on the topic of personal identity. He based his theory on Aristotle's tabula rasa, which is Latin for blank slate. Aristotle believed a human being is born without any mental content. Therefore, our identity and knowledge are built solely upon our future experience. It's like when kids play with clay. When they initially take a piece of clay, it's nothing more than a blob of dirt. But it's the kids who give shape to the clay as they build monstrosities with eight arms and three heads, and everything else their imagination allows them. This is similar, just of course on a much more severe level, Isaac explained. Lisa smirked and said, well, of course, if your identity has three heads, you're probably doing something wrong, I would think. Isaac replied with an honest laugh. Exactly, Lisa. It's nice to have a patient with a good sense of humor. Many don't, or seem to have lost it, as you might guess. Locke believed it's our conscious memory, not the traits, that create our identity. By being able to remember the past, we act in the present. These acts then build up and determine our future. So yes, the old I'll leave today's problems for tomorrow's me excuse doesn't work with Locke. But for him, you could probably get away by saying, 
I'll leave tomorrow's problems for tomorrow's me. In short, we are the same person as we were yesterday, to the point where we remember the past actions with the same clarity we remember the current. The insanity defense in law, in fact, is based on Locke's theory, as one cannot be held accountable for their unconscious actions. Lisa, you need to understand when you take the mule, your memories might no longer seem as if they're your memories. Although we're adjusting your identity, you might get a feeling as if we gave you a new life in some ways. And we need to know if you're okay with this. Depending on the person, it might be fairly drastic. Isaac explained, looking at her intently to read her reaction to the question. Doc, I don't think you realize how miserable I am. So if this is a chance to get rid of this body, as you explained it, and get a new one, I'm all up for it. I'd happily get rid of some of my memories. But let me ask you something. What about people with amnesia? Do they keep the identity they had before amnesia? I'm into music and I remember reading about this jazz guitarist named Pat Martino. He got amnesia, I think after some serious brain surgery. And worst of all, among all the things he forgot was how to play guitar. So he had to learn it all over again. The crazy part is, he learned to play the guitar the same way as he did before the accident. So wouldn't that be an example of a person losing a part of his identity and then getting it back? And isn't it strange that he learned to play the guitar the exact same way? Lisa asked. Isaac replied, Yes, that's an interesting example of a brain reset and its ability to follow up the tracks left before the amnesia. I know this event quite well, and I've studied it. After the recovery, Martino continued to play the guitar in his specific loose-picking style, which had made him famous before the operation. But there was one exception. He no longer suffered seizures, strong headaches, and depression. To me, that's even more fascinating than the ability to regain forgotten knowledge. The horrible event he experienced made him a better and stronger person than he was before the amnesia. So, since you brought up this example, would you say that Martino was the same person both prior and then after the incident? The initial answer would probably be no, but if you get to the very core of who he is, it was his identity and his will that made him regain his knowledge. The hardware had an error in the form of amnesia, and reinstalling the software was required, but it was his identity that made it all possible. Lisa replied, That reminds me of a podcast I listened to recently while I was trying to distract myself from yet another job search. The person interviewed was this physicist, Max Tegmark. He said although everything about us changes, like all of our cells, etc., the very essence of us stays the same. He might have actually said our pattern or something like that. Yes, Lisa, I've actually read his recent book. So with the mule, we're giving you the opportunity to change your pattern. What makes you, you? If you're still interested, I'd like to tell you about a thought experiment known as the Theseus Paradox. Discussed by Plato, and later by Locke and others, the question this paradox asks is if a ship has all of its parts replaced, will it still be the same ship? You have your original Theseus ship, but through years of sailing, it gets old and many parts get replaced. People change the ship's planks, the mast, 
the decayed wood. So then after all of these tune-ups, can we still call it the Theseus ship? Keep in mind, it no longer has any of the parts it originally had. So, observing it objectively, is it still the same ship, or is it a completely new one? Lisa looked skeptically at Isaac. If I'm being sincere, Doc, I think you're trying to talk me out of taking this drug. But okay, I'll play your game. I think you're trying to say we can apply the same principle to us, that the constant change we face in life shifts our ideas and opinions. The question that arises from this is, are we the same person if we have different ideas and opinions than we had before? Like that guy who wants to transplant his head onto his brother's body. Will he still be the same person type of thing? Isaac replied, let's not stray from the subject. I see you don't seem to have a problem with the possibility of losing your current identity and perspectives on the memories you've been building for your entire life. So let me tell you about effective neuroscience. It might clear up a few things related to this new foundation we're hoping to build for you. As an interdisciplinary field, which combines neuroscience with psychology and its research on emotions, personality, and mood, effective neuroscience has a thing or two to say on the topic. Isaac looked down and read from his notes. A psychologist in this area named Carol Azard said, Emotions are psychological phenomenon that involve changes to the body, like facial expression, changes in autonomic nervous system activity, feeling states, and urges to act in specific ways. In short, what you feel mentally, you express physically. As humans are the only species that experience a variety of nuanced and conflicting emotions, they also respond to them in nuanced and conflicted ways. If a tiger is hungry, he'll eat. If he feels threatened, he'll attack. And the more intelligent a being is, the more choices it has. With this, Lisa's failures resurfaced in her mind, forcing her to smile nervously. And it would seem the higher chance of her having an identity crisis, she said. Though I suppose I'm flattering myself as being more intelligent than a tiger. Isaac laughed again, but this time he did so to cleverly cover a slight doubt about her as an applicant. Maybe so, he said. You also often hear psychologists and neuroscientists talk about basic emotions. As there are lots of ways various scientists categorize emotions, we're going to stick to the categorization created by Eddie and Cindy Harmon-Jones at the University of Wales. First, there is desire, described as a reward-seeking process. Then we have liking, which means pleasure and enjoyment. Fear is the emotion that keeps your head on your shoulders, and rage is the emotion that might take your head off your shoulders. Finally, we have love and grief. Each emotion is created in a different part of our brain. Emotions are just something that happens in our body, same as breathing does. And I think you can see how our emotions and actions affect your identity. You wouldn't be the same person if you didn't experience the feeling of grief in that specific situation, would you? And the possibility of you hurting somebody might be under the influence of similar situations that happened in the past. But what if by being conscious of your emotions, you could take the matter of constructing your identity 
back into your own hands instead of letting the drug do the job for you? What if rewriting your narrative is the compass to control the navigation and rebuilding of your Theseus ship, your identity, through the emotionally rough waters of life? Not being able to refrain any further, Lisa replied with a nervous, desperate tone. Look, Doc, for years I've been trying to control my emotions and reshape who I am. And let me tell you, it was one failure after another. Out there in the hall, you have that Bismarck quote that says that only a fool learns from his own mistakes. Well, I'm tired of being less than a fool, the person who can't even learn from her own mistakes. I'm just tired, Doc. Isaac could see through her armor clearly for the first time. Yet Isaac continued in his usual tone. Okay, Lisa, I understand. Let me give you one more shot with Eric and Joan Erickson's theory on the stages of psychosocial development. If that doesn't change your mind at all, we'll continue with the mule. Erickson developed his theory alongside with his wife, Joan Erickson. Interestingly, he's also the guy who coined the phrase identity crisis. They created eight stages through which healthy individuals should pass in their lifetime. Hope, will, purpose, competence, fidelity, love, care, and wisdom. Question that people should ask themselves accompanies each phase. For example, can I love is asked in the love stage, and can I make my life count in the care stage? They stated how all of the stages are present at our birth, but they unfold according to our individuality, and one usually begins after mastering the previous one. Except that one stage doesn't necessarily have to begin with the success of the previous one. This can result in future problems and crises. Give yourself a moment to think about your past, Lisa. Depending on your age, would you say you have some unresolved issues that are long due? You most likely can't recall your birth, but if you think about the rest, how often did you question yourself and how often do you reevaluate yourself? In the love stage, you probably thought you knew what love is, only to find out it's something completely different as you went further by experiencing different achievements and failures in your love life. Your concept of love will change until it reaches the point where everything seemingly fits in its place. You probably found sturdy ground on the concept, although as you went even further, the ground still shook now and then. What their framework allows you to do is to try and reevaluate every stage and what effect did it have on your life that followed. The reason why Erickson's theory is meaningful for us is the way he and his wife presented it. Each stage is a challenge in your life, and when you beat the challenge, it adds another piece to your identity puzzle. The results aren't invariable, and the results can change in the future stages which, in a way, perfectly summarizes the personal identity creation. Same as the Theseus ship, you build your original ship where each part has its function. But each part isn't immune to change, both positive and negative. You sail through life on your own Theseus ship, and you constantly face challenges. The mast falls, so you need to build a new one if you want to catch wind. It's just not called the Theseus ship, but Jim, Tracy, Lisa, or Isaac. 
And none of it matters if you don't have a good compass helping you navigate your ship through the rough waters of inevitable emotions. Our emotions trigger our actions, and our experience reevaluates our emotions. Finally, through our actions, we gather new experience. You most likely have an idea of what kind of person you're trying to be. And most often, your actions take you towards one of the two possible paths, the one you want and the one you don't want to take. What would you say are the emotional triggers that cause you to question or divert you from the path you want to take? Maybe sometimes you feel disappointed because you aren't the person you wanted or needed to be. As Isaac was about to continue, Lisa stopped him and couldn't take it anymore. Her armor was off. That's why I'm here, Doc. Don't you understand? Because I'm not the person I want to be, and this mule seems to be the only cure. Look, I appreciate everything you're telling me, but please let me take the drug. It doesn't matter if who I am dies in the process and my memories don't seem like mine anymore. In fact, that might be better. I want to change out every part of this ship and sink the broke down version. Please, Doc, just help me out. Isaac looked at her closely as if he was making a decision in his head. Finally, after what seemed like an uncomfortable minute, he said, Okay, Lisa, we'll continue with the procedure. Every week, for several months, you'll return to take a regular dosage of the drug and do some tests. Happy at the answer, and glad to be able to curb another environmental disaster starting to brew in her tear ducts, Lisa turned to Isaac. Tests? With a comforting voice, Isaac replied, Yes, don't worry. It will be either extremely fun or incredibly boring, depending on how you look at it. Now let's get this paperwork behind us. Get ready to sign your life, or shall we say, your identity, away. One evening, about a year later, Lisa and her fiancé were having dinner with her sister and a couple of old mutual friends. Still laughing at something Lisa had just said, her sister replied, I still can't believe how much you've changed, Lisa. That long blog post you put on Facebook describing the difference in your before and after lives, as you called it, was extremely intriguing and very funny. Now that I think about it, one thing hasn't changed, that sharp tongue of yours. You really must have told them to keep your sense of humor intact. Lisa answered, smiling. I doubt there's a drug in the world that can eliminate that. Only hemlock can pull off that trick. Or maybe scissors. One of their other friends laughed, but then replied, Hey, I heard about that post, but I didn't get to read it. Can you give me the Cliff's Notes so it's not dull for everyone who's already read it? Lisa replied confidently. Well, after what I went through, I just learned a lot about myself. I was reflecting on it in writing the other day and decided to write an essay based on a question my doctor had given me. Do my emotions shape my identity? And the Cliff's Notes, as you wisely requested, is... Yes, I think they do, and probably more than anything else. And for me, an even deeper question was, can I use my moments of darkness for a brighter future? So again, I think the answer is yes. But first, you need to realize how these moments of darkness affect you, and accept that they change you. In fact, it's been amazing to learn how every part of you affects every other part of you. 
The final result, which is never final, is you. It's somewhat of a practice of getting the knowledge to understand how you can build yourself in a desirable fashion. And the driving factor seems to be the narrative you're telling yourself about yourself. So one part people told me they liked about the essay were the questions I left them thinking about at the end. Questions like, are you the cause of most or all of your problems? What's your story? And what do you want it to be instead? What are your emotional triggers? Are you the same person you were? Who can you become? Why do certain people and things make you unhappy? What are the emotional triggers that cause you to question or even divert from the path towards the person you're trying to be? People don't bother to think about what defines them and what makes up their identity, but they really should. I certainly didn't before all this happened. And by not doing so, it starts you on a path to being too defined by other influences like society, culture, family, etc. Doing this instead of introspection is emotionally driven. Fear, anxiety, angst, parental or societal disappointment, desire for respect. You can actually take your identity into your own mental hands with the goal of rewriting your story if you make it a systematic practice of recreating your identity. The reality is that our minds are emotionally charged. Lisa's friend looked at her in amazement as if she were a stranger and said, what did you do with the Lisa I used to know? And I thought I requested the Cliff's Notes version. My God, how long was this essay if that was the short version? As everyone laughed, Lisa's phone rang. Shit, sorry, I thought the ringer was off. Hmm, that's weird, Lisa said while checking her phone, her face slightly concerned. Sorry to be rude, but I apologize. I should probably take this call. She nervously looked around at the table and then signaled that she was going to take the call outside. With the door shut behind her, Lisa raised her voice when she replied, What in the hell are you talking about that the mule was a fluke? On the other end of the phone, Isaac sounded exhausted and defeated. I'm sorry, Lisa, but it's true. You might as well have been taking a sugar pill. The latest tests show that the drug doesn't do anything at all. It was a useless trial. I don't believe you, Isaac. Then why am I feeling better? I'm like a completely different person and you know it. Also, why do you sound so nervous? You've never sounded like this before and it's freaking me out. After a few seconds of silence, Isaac answered. Look, I, I felt I had to tell you this, but I can't say anymore. I wasn't even supposed to call you. They're canceling the active trials and supposedly have a new version, which you'll be happy to know they're cleverly calling Mule 2.0. But listen, I have to go. I resigned from the project and I'm looking for a new job. As I said, I just wanted to let you know. Goodbye, Lisa, and good luck. I'm really proud about how much you've changed yourself. Standing in the backyard, Lisa couldn't shake the feeling that something just didn't feel right. But with subtle moonlight shining on her face, Lisa shook the thought away. She turned and looked through the window into the house and saw her sister, fiance, and her friends enjoying dinner, stripped of worry and trouble. It was funny how clear it was to her now. 
she didn't need a compass to lead her back into that room. It was a clear path of navigation that was there all along. She just needed to right the ship. And so, Lisa confidently started walking back inside towards her new life. The Evolve Faster podcast is written, produced, and performed by Scott Ely. Many episodes are also co-written with the help of Antonio Rosich. It takes an enormous effort to produce all the quality, original content needed for this podcast. Your support would be greatly appreciated, and you can learn about multiple ways to do so by going to evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Here you'll find direct links to review and give the podcast five stars on key platforms like iTunes and share it on social media. These are free to do, but are critical to audience growth. And the only way to find out about new seasons is to register your email, so please do so. You will only receive valuable content and information on upcoming seasons and products. And finally, if you're benefiting from the Evolve Faster podcast, direct financial support at whatever amount you can afford is important for our survival. Running ads on a channel for free thinking content is an inherent conflict of interest. So if you want the podcast content to remain unhindered by commercial interests and stay edgy and raw, then direct support is the best and only path to content independence. Also, writing and production of each episode of the Evolve Faster podcast is a major undertaking spanning many months. It's a labor of love, but it does need your help to survive. So please consider becoming a subscriber at evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Your help and support are greatly appreciated and are what makes this podcast possible. Isn't it time for an upgrade? It's time to evolve faster.